Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, we have a few announcements to make. The program of the third edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit is taking shape. Our confirmed speakers include Drs. Andrew Tobin, Ryan Roth, Rosie DeWalibi, Karen Gregory, Oliver Hartley, Ines Liebscher, Christelle Manet, and many more. This year, the meeting will be held between October 10th and the 16th. The meeting will be virtual to allow you to join us from anywhere in the world. Live talks will be hosted on Zoom from October 10th to the 15th, and everyone is welcome to participate by presenting a poster or submitting a pre-recorded talk. Similarly to last year, we will have presentation prizes for trainees. We're also trying out a few new things as well. We'll have networking and poster sessions on Wonder. We'll also have a full day dedicated to trainees. If you're a trainee, hurry up and submit your abstract today to give a talk or potentially present a poster. Visit drgpcr.com summit today. We will also be hosting three workshops. We're excited to share that we'll have Dr. Sam Hoare and Dr. Luciana Leo, who will run a workshop on data analysis. Dr. Nicola Smith will host a workshop on how to preserve data integrity in the lab. And this year, we welcome back the GPCR DB team with Dr. David Gloriam, Dr. Albert Quistra, Gaspar Nandi Sekeresh, and Jimmy Caroli. Everyone is welcome to attend the summit. And it's free when you become a Dr. GPCR Ecosystem site member, which is also free. Speaking of the ecosystem, we are excited to share that the Dr. GPCR Ecosystem 2.0 platform is now open. Visit drgpcr.com to explore the ecosystem today. Please note that we are slowly migrating from our old website to our new website. You'll always be able to find us at drgpcr.com. And we thank you for your patience during this transition period. The ecosystem, if you're wondering, is your GPCR-focused virtual playground. Join over 75 of your peers who have already registered as site members. Remember, it's free. You'll also have the option to select a plan and get access to all things Dr. GPCR and much more. You get access to the new podcast episodes with video before they get released to the general public. Our new group discussions and forums, our job board, our learning center, where you'll be able to take a course or even prepare and share a course with your colleagues. And last but not least, you'll be able to discover GPCR companies and much more. Take advantage of everything that the new GPCR-dedicated online playground has to offer today by visiting drgpcr.com and becoming a site member. Remember, it's free. Once you are a site member, you can also choose to sign up for an ambassador program, which means that you'll able you'll get your own dedicated Dr. GPCR ecosystem link. And every time someone subscribes using your link for a year, you'll get compensated. Last but not least, we're also looking for content creators. Subscribe to the ecosystem and start writing your own GPCR-focused content. Share it and show off your talents. You can always reach us at hello at drgpcr.com or visit drgpcr.com to find out more about all our activities. And now let's dive into this episode. everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and today I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Nicole Perryhauser. Uh, we finally got together to talk. Today was a hectic day, but we're here. Hi, Nicole. 
Hi, Amina. Thank you so much for having me. It's just, I'm very honored to be included on this podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to have you here today. And I forgot to ask before we hit record, do you like Nicole being called Nicole or Nikki? Uh, I like to go by Nikki, but Nicole is on all my documents. So I'm fine with either. (laughs) Okay. So I'll stick to Nikki then since that's, that's your preference. And I've been calling you Nikki before. And for some reason, when we started, I I, I just read read your name like I didn't know it. Um, all right, super. So uh, let's start at the beginning. Would you please walk us through a short introduction about who you are and um, as a scientist? Sure. So I am currently a postdoctoral research fellow in the lab of Dr. Jonathan Javich at Columbia University Medical Center. And I've been here, this will be my third year in September. Um, Currently, my research focuses around adhesion G-protein-coupled receptors, or AGPCRs, but before I came to GPCR, I was working with the Arrestin proteins, and I did my graduate research at Vanderbilt University under the co-mentorship of Dr. Seva Gurevich and Dr. Tina Iverson. So it was a nice split between biochemistry and macromolecular X-ray crystallography. Nice, nice. Um, I and I knew that you, you were you were a postdoc in, in Jonathan Javis's lab. I didn't realize that it was quote unquote just three years. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I've known you for such a long time from 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 last year when we met when you guys were uh organizing the transatlantic uh, meeting for early career researchers and stuff. Right. So it's a small GPCR world. Yes, and a lot of time seems warped after the pandemic. Yes. I can't believe that I am also a third year. It feels like I've been here for a long time. (laughs) It has gone by so quickly. Yeah. I think the pandemic just, uh, you know, put a lot of things into perspective. Mm -hmm. I agree. So you mentioned that you, you completed your graduate studies, your PhD at Vanderbilt University before uh, going to, to do a PhD. Where were you and how did you get into, you know, science in general? Sure. So I started at Wittenberg University for my undergraduate. Most people have never heard of that institution. It's a very small liberal arts school that was near my hometown in Ohio growing up. And so I went to Wittenberg. I double majored in chemistry and biology. We had very generic majors. We only had biochemistry, biology, and chemistry as our main science focuses. And it was there that I really got involved in research. So I've known since a young age that I'm very passionate about research, but I was also just passionate about learning in general. Uh, So I find a lot of topics extremely fascinating. But the first project I really started out with was in a uh, entomology lab. So I worked with Dr. Jay Yoder and we looked at adult female ticks and how they responded to tick excretia in particular, the component guadine. And that was a pretty disturbing research experience, I would have to say. Uh, But I really liked asking the scientific questions and and getting to test it. So I did quite quite a few other research stints in my undergrad. I won't go through all of them. Uh, But because we were a small school, a lot of our focus was ecology-based and Mm -hmm. we were limited. We didn't have access to grad students or postdocs, masters, really anything other than undergraduates. And it's since changed since I graduated. Um, But so what I found most impactful was my junior year, I was accepted to an REU, which is a research experience undergraduate at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And it was there that I got to meet 
postdocs and grad students and master students and really see what it was to be involved in research. And that was my first genuine exposure to a research laboratory. Um, and I loved it. I fell in love ever since then. So it really confirmed that I was making the right decision. So that's that's kind of how I got into, into science in very brief <laughs> I love it. And and I can hear the I can hear it on your voice and the way you're explaining it that you really that was an eye-opening moment to you. And then you felt like you were in the right place. Um yes. I'm intrigued. You mentioned doing uh, stints, different stints in different research labs uh, at Wittenberg University. Uh anything that stands out, anything that you know um got you thinking about okay. I, I don't necessarily like this, but I like the concept of doing science and research. Yeah, so I would say I was pretty easy to please. There wasn't much that I didn't like doing. I, I tried my hand at organic synthesis uh, in my OCHEM lab. I worked with zebrafish and developmental biology in another lab. As I mentioned, the, the tick lab was actually a microbiology group. I really found nothing tedious. And I think that's because we had limited access to these, you know, big labs. And so any opportunity I had to do anything, whether it was a gel, a, a Western blot, or, you know, make this buffer, make the LB, I was just excited to do that and to have a place in, in that lab. Awesome. It sounds, and the tick, tick lab sounds very intriguing because other than the fact that, you know, they're horrible to get off of your skin and then you can get Lyme disease. I think most people don't even think about ticks in general. Yeah, he was a very, um, he didn't have a lot of competition, let's say, in terms of other <laughs> people working in, in this group. And for someone at a small institution, he was very power, like he was a, publishing quite a bit. He was going to conferences. So it, it's still a great experience at these small schools. I think the advantage to small schools is you do get a lot of hands-on attention. Yeah. Um, and you, you have to work with the materials because there's no one else there to, you know, work with that for you. Mm -hmm. And so you get a good approach of people directly mentoring you. And I think that really helped me when I moved to Vanderbilt, where it was, you know, completely the opposite. It was a little bit more hands-off. You kind of, you work with the post, it's more traditional in terms of what yeah. you're used to as a research environment. Um, and because I had that strong foundation at a smaller school, it really helped me succeed yeah there yeah it sounds like it, it gave you the um you know the confidence built out your confidence and then you knew that you were capable of doing these things you had the support you needed uh, at Wittenberg and that allowed you to to move on to the next level yeah and I would say that didn't come easily I think my first year of grad school I was very timid because I did come from a school that people didn't really know um, and so it's intimidating and you get that imposter syndrome that everyone likes to talk about Um, but after a while you grow more comfortable and realize that your education is just as competitive as those at, you know, more brand name, larger universities. And I, I felt like after the first year, I was able to catch up to my colleagues in terms of the research abilities and understanding the material. I think, and then it goes to, to the passion that you had at working in the lab and knowing that, you know, you're interested in this and this is what you want to do, mm -hmm. which is a motivator when, when you know which direction you want to go into. Right. Right. So tell me a little bit before going into end of, uh, for your undergrad, you mentioned chemistry and, and biology as a child. Uh, what did you want to become? I, again, I just love to learn. Um, 
my mom has one of the copies of my composition notebook where I wrote down in fourth grade that I was going to solve all the environmental issues. Um, I have never studied environmental issues since then, but <laughs> I apparently wanted to solve that. Um, so I would say my curiosity and scientific interests were almost always present, which was strange because my mother is a Spanish teacher and my dad worked in a printing company and science wasn't really a big thing in our family. Um, but I grew up in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and we were by the beach and I would loved to like play and observe the marine life and just really was an investigative child. And I, I think that's what sparked in me a passion to want to continue to explore that. Love it. I love it. And um, how did you get into studying GPCRs? So you, you went from Wittenberg University to, um, forget, I, I Vanderbilt. Yes, that's, yeah. the, that's, that's the, uh, that's the one I was looking for. And then what happened? You mentioned that you needed to adapt going from a small group to a larger university. So I would say in undergrad, I had no clear trajectory on in terms of what I was interested in. And the reason I was so attracted to Vanderbilt is because they have an interdisciplinary graduate program. So you come in and you rotate through four labs in any of the 11 departments at the university. And so it's really open. Um, my first rotation, I did microbiology. My second rotation, I did microRNA work. And then my third rotation, I ended up with Seva Gurevich, And we just got along so well and clicked. Um, and I really enjoyed just being in his lab. And he was also working in the lab, which I thought was really cool uh, to work alongside your PI. And afterwards, I rotated with Tina, who actually just works down the hall. And she does a lot of the structural components. So, and, and Seva and she had worked together successfully before. So I thought, why not do this co-mentorship again? Um, and that's where I got focused on the arrestants. So I really stumbled into the GPCR world. I'd ne I never actively chose it. Um, and ever since I started with the Arrestins, I was going to GPCR meetings, being involved with all those names. Um, I always felt like the strange child at those meetings because mm -hmm. at the point I was starting, I don't think Arrestins were as blown up as they are now. Um, now they're becoming sort of just as well known, maybe not colloquially, but around the community. Um, and so at the meetings, I was always fascinated by the GPCRs, but still, you know, farther downstream. So I never really zeroed in on how GPCRs work in terms of all of their structural components until I entered the Javich lab at Columbia. That's so interesting that you mentioned that at the time, you know, arrestants were just something that some people were studying and now it's, it's receptor, bitter arrestant G protein. Yep. And there's other components that other people are studying, but whenever you think GPCR, you think beta rest and, and G protein. So yes. I think with, yes. with and hopefully, time, please. hopefully the GRKs are coming up in there too. <laughs> I, I think, I think they are, they're a good third or fourth in line when it got after, well, third be, beside the, the receptor. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think there are other, other interesting subcellular, you know, components and some other intracellular components that are important for GPCR function that people are studying. Uh, I'm thinking of Joanne Trejo um, mm -hmm. and we're, we're getting there. We're getting there, getting to that picture. Um, so you, you mentioned that you kind of stumbled upon the field and you started out working on, on arrestants. Do you remember the first time you heard about arrestants or GPCRs? And if yes, what was the situation and what, caught your interest? 
I think the first time, if I'm being truly honest, was in my senior year of undergraduate in um, our biochemistry textbook, where I think GPCRs have all of a page and a half um, of the whole book. And so I knew of them, you know, in terms of studying for my final and knowing that, you know, they couple the G proteins and they signal and there's this thing called the restin that's important for stopping. And that was pretty much it. Um, but then, of course, Seva gave a lecture in my first year of uh, grad school. And that's where I sort of, one, I just fell in love with Seva. I really, I just, we clicked very well personally. And so I, I wanted to go and, and see what his lab was like. And we got, got along really well there too. And so then I just, I think because Seva was so passionate and excited about Arrestin and GPCRs as a topic that I also fell in love with that yeah. as well. Um, and then just going to my first conference or set of conferences, the community is so incredible. Um, and I just, I look forward to going to those conferences and seeing those people again. And now it's, it feels more like a family than anything else. Agreed. And, and uh, hence, you know, uh, hence Dr. GPCR and everything that we've been doing and the ecosystem. And, and it's kind of one of the reasons why I started the podcast, but also which it developed into all the programs we have. And now we're going towards this virtual playground is because to me too, it felt like a family. I always felt like at home, mm -hmm. like, and, and having, building that virtual home for this family becomes very important to me because we're all dispersed all around the world. We all do our thing. And then we get together from time to time in person at conferences. And then COVID comes along. And then we're all like, what are we doing? Can we please meet? So a, a nice way to help the community, I think, is really having this playground because it saves time. You're looking for something, you know where to go. Yeah. And I, I think the ecosystem has been great and watching it evolve over these just few years that it's been present. Two and a half. Been, yeah, it's been really great. And I think that was also the push for the the conference that Brian Bender, myself, and Andreas Brock and yeah. Buzzy Nesheva, Nesheva put together last year. Um, but ours was, of course, more trainee focused. We wanted the early career people mm -hmm. to really have a space to practice and present. And we wanted it to be free. Uh, a big part of it was we wanted it to be yeah. free and accessible so that they could attend. I think a lot of the the GPCR meetings in general are, are expensive, especially if you have to go um, in person. It could be, you know, $1,500 yes. just to travel and, and take room yes. and board. So having these opportunities for people to present that they can go to their PI and say, I'm going to present and it's free, um, I think is an yeah. important yeah, and I think I think you make a great point about you know creating the the first transatlantic meeting was I think it was great. I love the fact that it was trainee focused. Um, I love the way the program was put together. This year was also a success. Uh, I was I was on there on both days, and when we initially thought about in, in 2020 about putting together a virtual Dr. GPCR summit. The you know it, it's funny because the thought came in August and we were like let's do it in September so we had a month to pull it together and just how amazing the community is we had thirty talks and it was pre recorded and you know all the emails coming and going and we have we had 
talks from all around the world. We had, you know, high level people who were willing to give their time. And we also made it free the first year. Last year, we tried to change the format and it was also successful. And last year we had live talks and pre-recorded talks. And um, my, my, Big, big thing was to not to separate PIs from early career researchers from from trainees. And what I realized is that there is that separation. And I think it's a matter of pushing trainees, postdocs, masters, and PhD students to come forward and be able to present live on Zoom virtually after or before, you know, big names. Yeah. And last year we had scary, (laughs) it is scary, which I understand, but that's why I'm pushing people. And we had six amazing talks last year at the summit. And now we're preparing the third edition of the summit, which is going to be in October because of all the GPCR meetings in person popping up. And this year we're going to, we decided to make it free um, for everybody with uh, with people who, and ask people to become site members on the ecosystem. So you go online, you sign up and you become a site member, you get approved. So we wanna make sure that the ecosystem and people who are in the ecosystem are really GPCR people. And that's also free. Right. So it's it's a nice way to have that. And the novelty this year is that we're gonna have a full day of training talks. Oh, great. Which I think, I think I didn't, I didn't want to have that separation, but I think the field is pulling towards having that, you know, dedicated day, which is, I think, fine. We're going to have posters. We're going to have trainee talks. We're going to have workshops on how to analyze your data. And also um, Nicola Smith had um, accepted to give a talk about or actually a workshop on how to preserve data integrity and how to be organized in the lab based on her her own experiences with having to retract papers because of a sequencing. Right. I do remember that. Yeah. Thing. And, um, you know, and I think it's important and all of this, I'm, I'm saying all of this because this would not be possible without a phenomenal GPCR community. Yes. I, I do think what was apparent to me when I was organizing the transatlantic symposium was just how much of an overwhelming response we had from people who were uh, in the field for a long time, that they want to talk to the trainees, they want to be involved. Yes. And I find that super encouraging. Um, I think it is intimidating at first to talk to any of them uh, because they're the people whose papers you read and who you just look up to. And so it's bridging that first step is difficult, but then once the ice breaks, I think people feel more comfortable um, and I think they did a really great job this year. They, with the panel discussion they put together, yeah. it just made it, and they asked trainees to submit questions before. And I think that really, really helped, um, people who wanted to ask questions, but maybe felt more nervous. And then it really did get people asking them in real time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I listened and I listened in on that one. Um, I really liked the fact that, you know, people were really interactive and there were more questions than time to answer them. Right. Right. And um, yeah, it, it is a very good problem to have. And it is because we did that as well last year at the summit and we we had consecrated uh, put in an hour and a half and we had the same thing, which is amazing because people are interested in learning more about, you know, how to develop yourself, how to go into the career that you want. But at the same time, you know, higher level uh, panelists 
or they're giving their time and giving back. And I think it's, it's a good field to be in. I think it's a wonderful field to be in. All right, let's let's get back. Let's get back a little bit to you. I think we we kind of went away, but this was all based on your comment that how how nice people are in the field. Um, so you mentioned that you you know you've worked on arrestins, and then now you're working on uh, addition GPCRs. The question is in 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 the episode outline, and the question is typically what is your favorite GPCR. But before you answer that, um, I put in here it could be a receptor family, but it can be. A G protein could be a, an arrestin. It can also be a phosphorylation motif because I think it was Andrew Tobin or maybe Graham Milligan who said, well, actually, I do have a favorite phosphorylation motif. And I thought this was such, you know, taking it into such a level of nerdiness. But at the same time, I love it. So any favorites in the family? Well, I will have to say I worked with arrestin three and I, I do use Seva's nomenclature. Sorry. So beta arrestin two for those other listeners, um, for a long time. And so it used to be my favorite, but now I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to look at it for a few more years. <laughs> I need some distance. Um, and so I would say, because I've been working with actual GPCRs for a very limited time, I'm biased, of course, towards the ones that I'm working with. And those are the latrophilin receptors. So mm-hmm. latrophilin Three is probably where I put my most efforts, and that's more involved in neurotransmission and is in the brain. Um, but I look at all three of them, so one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. But I, I liked how how you you mentioned that you're biased, <laughs> and it kind yeah. of kind of goes that. How well do you know beta rest in two or rest in three? Would you be able to look at the sequence and be like, oh, this is this is what it is? Yeah, you know, Seva is um he's been in the field for a long time and he still keeps a lot of his clones on regular paper so i would say that i have become intimately familiar <laughs> with a lot of the sequences um we have since kind of brought him into the you know digital age but <laughs> good. he still has those reliable constructs and he loves to sit down and do them by hand wow well that's uh that's really awesome actually <laughs> How did you get into uh, into the Javich lab, and how did you get into studying adhesion GPCRs, the latrophilin receptors, um, in in your current lab? Yeah, so I joined Jonathan's lab shortly following graduate school. I think I graduated in May, and then went straight into postdoctoral work. Um, and Jonathan laid out three projects for me and said, "Which one interests you the most?" Um, and basically, they were the three major topics that. Jonathan looks at in his lab, and one was with the M-glue receptors, uh, one was with single molecule work, which they've recently published, um, and the other was the adhesion GPCRs, and there weren't a lot of people in the lab working on it, just one other person, um, and I just thought they were so interesting because a lot of the adhesion receptors, particularly the latrophilins, don't have small molecule ligands, and so that makes them very difficult to work with and study because a lot of our GPCR assays are acute activation assays. Um, And so that was an issue with the latrophilins. Um, They have endogenous ligands, but they're mostly transmembrane domain proteins. So they have endogenous flirt uh, and tenurins, Mm -hmm. but these are also very difficult to work with. So we, um, when I first entered the lab, we're looking at a way that we could acutely activate these receptors. And so that was one of the first papers that came out of my time with the Javich lab was uh, 
the first author was Sina Mathiasen, and she's since become an assistant professor at Copenhagen University. Uh, but she used a thrombin cleavage site and kind of put it right in front of the CTF so that she could use thrombin to enzymatically activate the, the adhesion receptor. And it was really, really successful in terms of using it in our acute activation assays. And so I've been working on optimizing that so far in my postdoc. I love it. And I think they're, they're super interesting receptors because they have these super long extracellular, you know, yes. um, and terminal domains, and then you have the gain domain and then cleavage sites and it can be, auto, oh, it's just, it's just a messy thing to be working with, but I think that's the fun, the fun part of it. Yes. And this year has been extremely exciting. As you probably know, there were, there was a quartet of papers that were published yeah. in nature, April, I believe of this year. Yeah. And it, totaled up our adhesion GPCR structures to eight, as opposed to we had one that came out, uh, I think in 2021. Mm -hmm. And they were all truncated. So they didn't, none of them had the end terminal portion. They're all truncated to the CTF. But it's the first time that we've ever visualized where this cryptic agonist, the tethered agonist interacts on the receptor. And it was just wildly conserved uh, in an, in the in the center of the receptor. And so that was really cool to see. And what was exciting is the adhesion GPCR workshop was the next month. Um, so a lot of the authors were at that workshop and it was fun to, to talk to them and discuss yeah. what they thought about the activation. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, of the field and, and of adhesion GPCRs and which reminds me, you mentioned, you know, the, the structures that came out. So Ines Liebscher will be presenting at the summit this year. Mm -hmm. Excited to have her on, Anthony Bucard, who's also uh, an addition yes, GPCR I met person. Anthony. I met Anthony at that workshop, and I've never met a happier scientist. Right? He is. He's just amazing. He's just amazing, and he'll be also presenting at the summit and um, the next meeting in 2024 in Mexico. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited because he's. I mean, his lab is in Mexico, so it'll be great to yes. to kind of pour where he works. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so the the big secret, which I'm going to spill out right now, and I hope you won't mind, uh, <laughs> is that we're co-organizing. So I'm helping to organize that meeting. Actually, I think he might have hinted that at the, at the workshop. <laughs> the so it workshop. might already be spilt a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he, he asked me before and he said, you know what, if they agree to um, to ha have me do it, can, do you want to help out? And I said, of course, I think it's just a, what a lovely, you know, place to do it. Plus, I think it's an amazing topic and I think it's going to be really awesome. And the big debate was beach or city, beach or city. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we landed on beach. So uh, oh, we'll great. see. Great. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm, I've I voted for for beach, and I think Anthony <laughs> agreed with me. So excited to uh, to hear to, you know to know more. I think we're getting a meeting together next week to see. Wonderful. That's great. I hope to see you there in two years. <laughs> I we will be we will be there. We will definitely be there. So that's that's going to be awesome. Um, so you mentioned um, you know having three different three letter fill-ins. Um. What do they do and what's the difference between the three receptors? So the difference is I don't, I don't know if we have huge delineations in terms of their differences. I focus mm -hmm. primarily on latrophilin three, so I'm not going to dance around knowing all of the interests yeah. of one and two. Uh, but three, we're mostly interested about it in the nervous system and how it works in synapse formation. Yeah. Uh, the Sudoff lab has published a lot on synapse formation with the latrophilins for both two and three in the hippocampus. Um, and 
I think it's been, I, I, I mean, I love reading their work. I think it's very impressive. Yeah. Um, we're of course more interested in the downstream signaling mechanisms and how these signaling mechanisms might be linked mm-hmm. to the adhesion. So I think an, an unanswered question or a, a maybe some labs have addressed portions of it, but I don't know if we have a complete picture of how adhesion dictates downstream signaling or if they're even working together. Um, So it will be interesting, I think, as we develop tools and we're working on tools in our lab as well, where we can truly probe those two things concurrently and say, okay, Mm -hmm. we have a ligand interaction. Does that initiate intracellular signaling or does some sort of intracellular signaling inform on how these receptors interact with others? And does that change synapse development? I love it. And that's a very important and interesting question, which is, I think, it crosses what gets out of the GPCR field. I can think of integrins. Uh, they're also involved in adhesion. And the question is, what happens? Is is the, the mechanotransduction or the mechanosensing part of the, of the integrins important to signaling? And what do, how is that connected? Or is that... Is that two different functions that are d- independent of each other? Right. And I think a, a, the mechanosensation is a huge topic right now. I think a lot of labs are trying to do sophisticated experiments where they can remove the NTF and look for signaling downstream. Yeah. Um, I know at the workshop, that was a, a huge topic where people want to know, do you need to pull off the NTF to get signaling or can it stay on there? And I, I think Enos actually just published yeah. a nice kind of piece where they commented on this, um, talking about how some adhesion receptors don't cleave, don't have that autoproteolytic cleavage. And if they can't cleave, does that mean they can't signal? And I think there is some biochemical work to show that the uncleaved receptor can still signal. Uh, and so that that's interesting. And I think that brings us to the big problem that these structural studies have presented, which is that the tethered agonist forms a tight alpha helix when it interacts with the receptor. But when it's in the full length receptor, it's a beta strand in the gain domain. Mm -hmm. And so people, you know, they want to know how can it go from being an energetically favorable beta strand to pulling itself out and becoming an alpha helix if the receptor doesn't cleave. Um, and so it's hard to imagine that it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how people explain that. I think Enos in her commentary did a good job and it's going to take experimental evidence to really refute or support it. Um, but I, I think it's a really compelling thing. That's going to be the next topic that's hot for our field. Well, 2024. Yeah. 2024. Well, no. I think I think it's uh, what I do very much like about adhesion GPCRs, and I think that's the difficulty again with it. It's the fact that you know it they can be huge, mm-hmm. and bulky, and then they can do all of these things, and which which makes you fantasize about okay, what can it do? Why is it the way it is? What does it control? And how can we modulate it in disease settings? But I think the difficulty is the fact that they're very difficult to work with, and we don't have enough tools to really dissect out and get those answers. Right, yes. Um, And there's domains in certain adhesions that we don't even know what their functions are. Um, So it'll be very interesting. Like we know in the latrophilins, we have certain domains that are responsible for interacting with the endogenous ligands, such as the tenurin and the flirts. 
but there's a horm domain as well. And there's a polyne or a serine rich repeat area. And what is the purpose of that? I don't know. Um, and obviously just basic things are difficult with these receptors. Cloning them is hard because they're more than 10 kilobases. Um, and that's just my receptor. I, I don't know how big the very large adhesion GPCR is. Um, I, I, think it, I, think, I think they go from 600 to 9,000 amino acids or something like that, depending on which one you're looking at. So when I think about the quote unquote, poor little chemokine receptors I worked on, which were super easy to activate and express and clone and you name it, this is a whole level of whole new level of difficulty. Yes. And, and, you know, you would think that it would be really amenable to cryo-EM, but I think with these studies that were, the majority were cryo-EM, none of them could see the N-terminal fragment. And I, I think that just talks about how difficult it's going to be to position that. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of tools they design in order to be able to, you know, solidify it, to, to visualize it. Yeah. So speaking of tools, and it's funny because I did ask Anthony this, if, if he had any you know, if he had a magic wand and he can create a tool for him to, you know, answer any addition GPCR related question, what would that be? And his answer was, you know, become teeny tiny and go down into the cell and watch the receptor work, <laughs> uh, which I thought was very, I, I actually, I actually like that, that answer. Um, and you mentioned, you know, the paper where you, you, that you guys have inserted that thrombin cleavered site in order to be able to measure receptor function what do you, if, if you had a magic wand, what would you need? Like, what would you use it for? I want something really basic. I want a stable cell line. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Very doable. I've been trying to get a stable cell line of my receptor for a while. And for some reason it's thwarting me. I should be able to figure that out. That's the one thing I want so that I don't have to redo <laughs> all the transfections. Um, but I would also like a small molecule ligand, um, you know, that I want an agonist and antagonist. I want the complete set. Um, so I can do these pharmacology assays. That would be wonderful. And, you know, I think a lot of groups have been trying to do high throughput screening for these receptors. And mm -hmm. it's just extremely challenging because the readouts are hard um, yeah. and it's hard to keep them consistent, which is another reason for a stable cell line. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and the toolbox, you know, you, you'd have your little toolbox, you have the vial of stable cell lines, you have your vials of agonist antagonists, you name it. And then it's just a mix and read. And there you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I think Anthony's answer is probably fair and would, um, you know, get more solutions than mine. So maybe we should do his. <laughs> maybe we should, you know, it's, it, I think uh, there was a cartoon. I think it was, it was called the magic school bus. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So maybe would we should have a, a magic adhesion GPCR school bus and we can go explore adhesion GPCRs or any GPCR for that matter. All right, super. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about how amazing the field is and how nice and people and how giving the people are in the field. And I think you know, based on what you, you were saying that you had a really great mentor in Seva at Vanderbilt and you're really enjoying your time as a postdoc in, in the Javich lab. Any other advice uh, for, for junior scientists, whether it's about how to pick their next step, uh, how to, you know, mentally go through a PhD and a postdoc, anything. Right. I have my three things that I wrote down before. 
Um, but something that's coming to mind is the fail to plan, plan to fail, uh, which I think is fair, but also unfair because there's so many times that I've planned in science to do certain things and they just don't work. Um, I interviewed with probably seven postdoctoral mentors and I chose Jonathan and I did not interview with him. So, you know, <laughs> sometimes it's just, you can't plan and I love to plan. So that always is nagging at me. Um, but I think for me being successful in science, it's so important to stay positive. It's so easy to focus on the negative aspects of our job and the difficulties and, you know, the inadequate pay and those things are important. And I think that they should change, but it's not beneficial to me to focus on those in, in the here and now. And so I think when things are difficult and there's pitfalls and, and setbacks, it's the people I surround myself with who constantly encourage me and pull me back up. Um, the main person of which is my husband, but you know, also the people in lab who can sympathize with, with difficult things. Um, the, that's, super important to have people immediately in your community that you can reach out to for support. And all of us listening and, and me as well, because I feel like when, and you, you made a couple of great points, one about staying positive because, you know, things never, or most of the time don't work out the way you plan them. And sometimes you don't plan and oops, things start working and you don't know, you can't repeat it and you have no idea how that even happened. Um, but also the fact that you mentioned, you know, something important, and I don't think we've ever talked about this on the podcast is the inadequate pay for, yeah. for postdocs and PhDs. And I think that needs to change, but I would, love, I would not complain <laughs> to have some more funding. Of course, of course. And I think that's important because you are doing such a high level work and you should be fairly compensated to do that. And the potential explanation would be, oh, you're in training, so you shouldn't be expected to. But I don't think it's it's true. I don't think it's fair. That being said, I think knowing that you're not compensated to the fullest extent of your abilities is shouldn't be something that prevents you from doing a PhD or prevents you from doing a postdoc. I think it should motivate you to stay focused, stay positive, and get out. <laughs> in the sense that you move on, you determine what your goal is, you take what you need to learn there, you develop the skills you need, and then you move on. Maybe that's why it was developed this way. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Although I do think we have to recognize that, you know, there are people who can't just look by it, who maybe have families to support and that does inhibit yeah. them from getting involved. Yeah. And so I would love to see that change so that we can have yeah. you know, more equality and more diversity present in our workforce, because I do think a lot of good people are deterred by that. Um, yep. You know, they go to great places still, like a lot of my grad friends who, you know, they couldn't afford to do the postdoc and uh, would go to industry and do incredibly yeah. well and, and get the compensation and benefits that mm -hmm. they need. Uh, but it's yeah. unfortunate for us because then we lose them as, you know, an exactly. academic no, I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, I've, I've went through it with a family and it was not easy. And I think it was very shocking when, you know, I left from a postdoc to an industry job doing pretty much the same thing at a different pace and doubling, doubling my pay. And I was like, wait a minute, all of these years I was worth this 
And sometimes people feel like, you know, you're being undervalued in academia. I don't know how to change the system. Maybe we should record a different podcast episode around how to change the system and you're invite, you know, or maybe we should have a panel discussion about it. And I think it's unfair. And sometimes it's, and it, it's, it's a hard issue for a lot of reasons because I mean, I can only really speak to the U.S. experience that I've had, um, but you know, the NIH funding is limited too. And so even though some PIs may want to pay more, they might not have the ability to pay more. Yeah. And it's just becoming, you know, it, it's not as straightforward as let me just increase your, your money. It has to come from somewhere. Yeah. Um, but I do hope, and I hope that when I'm a PI, I remember, you know, how difficult it is to situate yourself in some of these cities that are most attractive for postdoctoral candidates. Like I think of the San Francisco area, you know, I'm in New York city, but Boston, these places are not inexpensive. Yeah. It, it takes a lot and you do sacrifice to, to be there. And yeah. I think like you're saying for people, some people, the sacrifice feels like motivating to, to get in, get out and, and do what you need to do. Um, but there's always going to be people who who can't do that. And it's not because of lack of passion. Um, yes. Yes. I, I, I agreed. Agreed. And it's a difficult choice to be made. And I think you made a great point as I don't think it's the PIs who don't want to pay students and postdocs for. It's the way the system is. You know, and the, for example, I had a pretty long podcast episode with Stuart Bosley and we were trying to figure out how and why is success measured the way it is measured in academia? And what can we do or how can we change it in order to, for it to be a little bit more democratic, I want to say, and then not lose all that talent? And I think this goes back to the same funding question. It's, it's the system, but we still have to talk about it. Yeah, and hopefully change, you know, make yes. little as we go. Um, exactly. But that kind of brings me back to the stay positive thing. I, it is really easy to focus on all these hardships. And I mm -hmm. completely sympathize with people who I see, you know, exiting academics. And we seem to be in a, in a period of mass exodus right now from academics. Um, but there are such wonderful positive things to fight for. And that's a reason I want to be a PI. I want to be there to help facilitate some of that change mm -hmm. and it's not going to be easy and time that's not going to be fun and there are days when I just think man I should jump ship uh, but I try to make those days less than the positive days um, and I think what helps me is mentoring people in the lab and you know especially young people not that I'm ancient yeah. but, um, <laughs> 25 you know, plus <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thank you. But like seeing these people who are getting introduced to science for the first time and the excitement they get with their first result. And, you know, that's what I want for people when they come in the lab. I think the longer that people are in the lab, sometimes the more down they get about the system that we're working with and the flaws that it has. And seeing people come to science for the first time is what keeps me motivated to make those changes. I love, I love the point, the couple of points that you made. I think um, I've always enjoyed having people visit the lab. I had, when I was doing my PhD, um, regularly had high school students come in the lab. Um, there's two, two, guys, two, two boys, two, two young teenagers, 14, 15, who spend the whole day 
um, purifying DNA from E. coli. And I, I don't know if I don't, I cannot remember their names. I have no idea. All I remember is that they left with a sample of the DNA they purified and we had quantified it and they were the happiest kids ever. <laughs> You know, yes. and uh, that I do in the morning and hate doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I was actually, they were working, they, they made my DNA, which I was like, okay, there you go. It was great experience <laughs> for you. I don't have to do it. But, but I think, I think that's important. The other point that you made, you know, about kind of jumping ship and really focusing on what's the positive. And I think um, it, what's important is to figure out what is it that you want to do and figure out a path to get there. And I think right now with the current environment compared to 10 years ago, it's much easier to look at your options to potentially go to industry. But for a long time, at least in my mind, it was like, if you're going, if you're leaving academia, you go to industry, there's no way back. And I don't think that's the case anymore. No, I would agree. I, I think there are, I mean, even when I was at Vanderbilt, we had several people who had returned um, yes. from, from industry. So we had Jeff Kahn, um, yes. we had Dave Weaver. So we had some really positive, successful role models who, who showed us that there are ways to marry, you know, the industry yes. feel and the academic desire to kind of probe a little bit more deeper. Yes. Yes. No, I think I think it's and I think it's important. And I think the other uh, change that I'm seeing is for a long time, at least again, in in my in my time or in my head, and I've been 25 plus for a while now, uh, <laughs> um, is that people would say, oh, it's academia or industry and the in industry or the private sector is the dark side. And I don't think it's true. I think it's the other side of the same coin. And Again, going back to the ecosystem and to the fact how, of, of how fantastic the, the GPCR field is, I think if our goal as a field is to improve human health by doing everything that we're doing, we will benefit from coming together into the same playground with biotech, pharma, suppliers, and talk to each other. The goal of the ecosystem, the way I like to explain it, is imagine this beach. You have all these, uh, all this sand, and each grain of sand is somehow like dispersed on the beach. And we have GPCR folks and GPCR companies. And the goal of the ecosystem is to really kind of bring everybody together who works on GPCRs, who has an interest in improving human health through targeting GPCRs. And I keep saying GPCRs, but that's not exactly. True, and it's GPCRs in general, and it involves beta restins and G proteins and anything that's related to to the field. Sometimes people tell me, you know, it's Dr. DPCR podcast, so I'm working on G proteins. Can I come on the podcast? And yes, the answer is yes. It would have sounded weird to to call it Dr. GPCR beta restin and G proteins. <laughs> yes, and I yeah, I I think getting all these hats in one room is very important. We all think very differently. I think a lot of academics tend to be in the nitty gritty and uh, because industry has to sell a product eventually, they yeah. tend to be more big picture. And so having those together is super beneficial. Um, I also think the smaller biotechs that are cropping up really do seem like little labs to me. Um, so, you know, we've kind of got a melding of, of all the world's together, which is yeah. fun to see and live through and uh, explore all those possibilities. 
I think it's, and I think you make a great point. I think the smaller biotechs are like these, you know, rocket fueled, you know, labs where, yes, the goal is at the end of the day to make money long term, but it is very data driven. It is very science based and you, the the I want to say the main dif- the main differences between an academic lab and a biotech lab, whatever topic they're focusing on, is that in biotech you have uh, tighter deadlines, so the speed is much faster. You have well-defined deliverables, or most of the time, well-defined deliverables, and funding is different as well, because the goal is not to teach. The goal is not to show that you can do experiment X. But the goal is to get data fast so that you can succeed and or fail fast as well. Right, right. But at I the wish end of- sometimes that right? we had better deadlines. <laughs> then I'm a I'm a deadline maintainer, and so <laughs> I get uh, collaborations with people who like to you know extend it up to the last minute, or we can turn it in a little late. It's fine. I hate that. Drives me I- nuts. I feel I, I don't. Yeah. Pushing stuff down the line just because we can push it down the line. It's something that I don't particularly appreciate. We talked about it. This is it. We've planned it out. You know, sometimes when things happen and, you know, some data that takes you into a different direction, it's totally understandable. But when it's just out of thin air saying, oh, we can do it later. That just drives me nuts as well. So yeah, I definitely, <laughs> we're definitely type A people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Organized, list-based, deadline-based, and you know, there's no going around around things. Um, any other advice for junior scientists? I think something that I was told that I, I think is still important is to practice writing consistently mm-hmm. and all the time and every day. Um and I've always been grateful. My my other mentor, Tina Iverson, was a big proponent of having us write our own everything. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think a lot of other PIs tend to be more hands-on. Maybe they'll help really drive your first few papers. And, and Tina's the opposite. She would have you really write everything. And she gave phenomenal feedback um, for you to kind of readdress and rewrite and, re- and, and rethink. And I'm so grateful to her that she did that. I did not like her at the time because it's a pain in the butt to have to do all of that foundational work yourself um, or yourself with with pushes in the right direction. But now I'm so grateful to her because when I go to write my grants or um, you know go to write a paper or go to write answers for a podcast, I feel like it comes a little bit easier. Um, and you kind of, you learn your scientist writing style. Cause I think it's different than other creative writing styles or even colloquial writing styles. Um, and, and so I think any opportunities that you're given as a student to practice, whether this be grant applications, you think you have no chance of getting, um, or op-eds, which are opinion pieces, or, you know, just sitting down for a few hours a day to write down your methods. I, I think that's important and it's a skill that can only improve with practice. I love it. And I think also capturing what you've done in the lab in a lab notebook on a regular basis. Yes. And now 20 days later, trying to scratch your head as to, okay, what was the buffer that I used and what's the catalog number and what's yep. the lot number of things. But I think at least I had always a lot of trouble with capturing this information on time because I was always pushed to 
experiments, 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 experiments. And yeah. working with live cells, it's just, you know, you're at the mercy of your hex cells or whatever cells yeah. you're working with. And it, it's a very, you have to be so, um, you have to really have intention every time. And if you are kind of, I think as grad students, when you're starting out, it's just like you're thrust into this and you, you don't really have a good example in a lot of cases of how to organize yourself, of how to organize your data online. And so you're trying to do all these things at once. So it's yeah. natural that you don't have time to sit down and, and write it all out. Um, yeah. But now I think that I've become more senior. I'm very intentional about writing everything. And I like to keep an electronic notebook um, mm -hmm. just so I can search through things and, and you know, have a complete documentation. I'll write things by hand as I go, but I always, always update the electronic notebook at the end of every day. And I think that's a lot of work and that's why a lot of people don't do it. Um, but it has made such a world of difference when I'm going back and really need to know something because it's already there and I've already thought about it. I think you, you made an amazing point about the electronic notebook. Back in the day, it did not exist. But nowadays, there's free tools out there that allow you to do so many things. And I think not, well, it's amazing that they're out there. They're, you can use them. Right. And it's searchable. Yes. I think the oh, searchable keyword, right? <laughs> you don't have to be flipping through 10 notebooks and then you're missing notebook five. And you know that the information is on page 102 on that. And you know where it is because you can kind of remember which side of the page it was, but you cannot find the notebook and now it's searchable. Or you can even ask Siri or uh, Alexa. <laughs> yeah, can, I don't so know. Many, there's so many different flavors of these notebooks. So you, I think a lot of people can find one that works for them. And even if you can't use, maybe it's too expensive. I know some of these cost money. Some schools have subscriptions, so they're free. Mm -hmm. um, but even if you can't, you can make your own little digital, yes. digital kind of electronic notebook the way you want. Yeah. Um, although I would say back yourself up to an external hard drive, <laughs> always yes. have back up. Um, yes. yes. What, uh, um, you know, you mentioned electronic notebooks, which one is your favorite? How many have you tried? Um, pros and cons, maybe people listening might benefit from it. Sure. So I've only used Columbia's lab archives is what mm -hmm. they have. And I like it. Um, but I, I like to make my own version. We have a a free subscription to OneDrive. So I do a lot on just self-organizing on there and then backing up to an external. Um, that way it can be on any of my computers at all times. Um, but I did enjoy Lab Archives for the little time that I used it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've used Benchling, uh, which is- yeah, I've heard good uh, things about that. I, I think the ELN, so the electronic notebook is free. The registries is out of reach for our academic labs, I want to say, because those are really expensive. But uh, I think it's just amazing because it's searchable. You can share it. It's online. So, and it's backed up on their servers, or if you're in, in a company, then it's backed up on the company server and then it's safe and secure. And it can even be, <laughs> yes. And it can be uh, connected to instruments. So whenever, you know, you finish reading whatever you're reading on your plate reader, just drag and drop and it's already in there. That's super nice. Yeah. Which I think, I think, I think it, it really helps with, with the data integrity. And again, the search, searchable, I think it's just a, such an exciting word when you're looking for something and you can just search for it. 
And I will say we also use, I've, I'm recently, so I told you I started in biochemistry, x-ray crystallography. Now I work with mice um, mm-hmm. and it has been a wild ride. I never thought I would work with mice because I've always been afraid of blood. I was mm-hmm. like the person who fainted in every single anatomy class, uh, but I've since been able to overcome that. <laughs> Uh, but we, the reason I say this is because we also use uh, transnetics as our online kind of mouse colony management. Okay. And that has been an incredible tool um, if we're talking about management softwares, because it tracks all your mice, it tracks your litters, it tracks your breeders. It's just been really nice. And you can share, you know, genotyping information with your lab mates just in a click. Um, and I think that was such a phenomenal tool. Yeah. I, I, I have never heard of it. I have worked with mice. I did not like to work with mice. Um, I think the most difficult thing was sacrificing the mice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you do it. I used to do it two by two. And the first two was fine. But then the next two would feel it. Already. It was just, I mean, oh, my God. It was the worst thing ever. I'm so glad. I mean, I'm the kind of person who had trouble throwing out hex cells because I had too many cells. Oh, no. So, so like... <laughs> from from being like sorry got to throw you out it's friday night i only need two mils of you uh to to sacrificing mice that was such, such a big leap for me yeah you know i i actually that makes me think when i was mentoring someone um we were making lb media and i we were done with the media for the day so we were cleaning it out and we added bleach to kill the cells and i told him you know, if you lean in closely, you can hear them screaming. And he believed me. <laughs> and I felt so guilty. I was like, no, 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 no. Really I'm kidding. Can't. Okay. But that's what made me think of feeling bad for your, your hex cells. That's a new one. Yeah. Yeah. I felt not only I felt bad throwing them out, but whenever I was doing an experiment, it was important and I would finish transecting and put them in the incubator and I'd be like, you guys do what you need to do. I'll be back tomorrow. And I, I don't know. I think I had this, this interesting relationship with my hex cells because everything depended on whether the cells would cooperate. Yes. Yes. You know. I did a little bit of work with primary neurons and um, while I, while I'm in Jonathan's lab, I've been doing that. And I thought hex cells could be finicky, but man, <laughs> those primary <laughs> yes. primary cultures are very picky. Wow. Um, so I feel you there. Yeah. I've worked with different cells and cell lines and stuff. And I don't know, I always liked a challenge of, you know, bringing back cells from the dead where, you know, you, you thaw the thing and there's like maybe 10 cells that survived and then you put it in the 96 well plate and then you wait a little bit and then you transfer it into the the 12 well and the, the 24, then 12 and then six well. And then at some point, you know, it's going to pick up. But I think it, it, it's just, uh, I don't know, it was just a fulfilling moment when, you know, you, you You're brought them back. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they're They're back. They're back and they're important. All right. Top three aha moments that you had as a scientist. Um, you know, I left these blank because I just don't know. I think they haven't happened yet. <laughs> that, that was well, my I think, I think uh, based on what you were telling me, the fact that the, the aha moment was changing from a small university to a larger institution where you kind of knew that you still liked what you did and, but you might have felt a little bit, um, you know, not at ease coming from a small environment, but yet you persevered. I think that must have been an aha moment based on what I've heard is that you 
you kind of overcame that fear and then you developed confidence in, in your knowledge? I hope I've developed some confidence. Confidence is very hard in science, I think, because we are constantly humbled by the experiments that fail. Yes. Um, yes. yes. But- and I think yeah, we're also taught to, because in academia, taught to formulate things, you know, to kind of protect if just in case it didn't work like that, you know, the data indicate and, um, you know, we speculate and things like that. And it's never, I feel like when you, when I used to write, it was never definitive, uh, which, which is fine, but I think that doesn't help when it comes to developing confidence in your data or in, in, in yourself. Yes. And because I, there's, I think, yeah. I think we as scientists, one thing when I was in grad school, in our journal club, I remember that the, the professor that was kind of mediating our journal club for our class stopped us one day because we were reviewing a journal article and we were being particularly critical. And it's because we're taught to be critical, right? We're taught to to look for what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and the professor stopped us and, and said, let's say some positive things first about this study and, and point out what the authors did really well. Because I think we do forget that a lot. And that has a lot to do with draining our personal confidence. Um, yeah. because we're, we're taught to look for what's wrong. Yes. Um, but we got, and that goes back to my first point of, you have to focus on some positive things too, because yes. for a study where one thing goes awry, there might be 10 things that are meaningful and useful. And, and it, in, in the way that we publish science now, we have to publish a story. And I think sometimes it would be nice if we could just get our data out and, and not have, I mean, it's important to give background and, and perspective of why the study is important, but sometimes the data are negative and that doesn't mean nothing. Um, and it is still useful. So I'm, I'm still trying to think of creative ways to publish negative data. Um, yeah. So we used to joke when I was in, in, in during my PhD with with a friend of mine who's not in the GPCR field is that we should establish the Journal of Negative Results <laughs> because I, but I I think well again and I, I'm I'm bringing it back because that's also one of the reasons why the ecosystem is is happening is that so within the ecosystem you can you can join you know become a site member you can have a subscription. To, the, to do it. And then it gives you access to all things GPCR and Dr. GPCR and everything in between. And then you get to talk to people, but at the same time, you can create a course and, or you can, you can participate in a forum. You can start a, an adhesion GPCR, electrophilin three forum <laughs> or electrophilin three group. And this is potentially a place where people can put up their negative data. Because it's important to know what doesn't work, I think. Yeah, and I mean that it would be great. I'd like to see this from for all science. And I don't, I don't know if like a bioarchive is the answer where you can put data out there. Yeah, um, but I know people have strong opinions, yay and nay, for bioarchive. But I, I think it could be a very useful way to put mm-hmm. data that might not have a home, yeah, place where yeah. a student can still reference it in their in their you know, CV or their resume. Yeah. Well, we should, we, we have to create it. We have to create the journal of GPCR negative results for GPCR research. <laughs> I, I think, I think it would be super useful because, you know, it, you're gonna, 
save people's time, people's money, funding, knowing that, you know, being very transparent, this is what we've used, this is the data, it didn't work, this is why we think it didn't work. And then, you know, one, nobody will potentially people are gonna be like, I'm not gonna repeat that. Or someone is gonna read it and they're gonna contact you and say, hey, have you tried this? Yeah, right. And help you troubleshoot. And exactly. And I think that's very important. And having a place where you can deposit this information and a place where you can talk about it with your peers and the community at large might be super beneficial. So let, let me think about it. I'll I'll think about it and try to uh to come up yeah, with something. Synthesis. I'll just create the problems and you can solve them. <laughs> Perfect. And we're gonna <laughs> give it to the to the uh GPCR field to, to solve that. <laughs> All right. Uh, what else? Uh, what uh, what other aha moments? Jeez. Uh-huh. Anything you know? I think I think the the, the thrombin cleavage site idea. And that uh, wasn't my aha. That was definitely all credit to the first author of that study. And I just think uh, now we've kind of improved about um, on that site. And I'm not going to share it yet because we have yet to publish it. But it was just such a remarkable idea that she and Jonathan kind of came up with and I think really impressive way to get around the fact that we don't have a way to acutely activate these. Um, And people before that were, you know, they would remove the tethered agonist and then add it as a peptide. I think Mm -hmm. that was good as well, but peptides can be really hard to work with. Um, And so having this way, I mean, I've used this, this construct design in a number of acute assays and it's just so reproducible. Um, and I would say at least for our receptor, because I haven't used it ubiquitously across all mm-hmm. the adhesion GPCRs, but it, it's just made working with them and probing their G protein coupling and hopefully one day their arrestin interactions um, possible. It's an elegant system. I think yeah. that's the word that comes to mind. It's really elegant. I like it when people get very creative and they solve a major issue of, you know, like this with something really simple. And you're like, why didn't everybody think about it 10 years ago? Yes. And I will say joining Jonathan's lab, um, Jonathan is probably, he thinks of so many controls that I've never thought of that are just, he's really made me expand what I think of to be a good experiment. Mm -hmm. I used to say, okay, this is the positive. This is the clear negative. Now we do our tests. And Jonathan will just think of all these elegant additional negatives or positives that really should be included. And so I'm very grateful for him that, that he's made me kind of expand that mindset when I'm looking at my experimental design. Um, but he's one of those people who really gets down in those nitty gritty details, like you're saying, and really focuses on things that maybe after you're like, wow, this should have been really obvious um, that weren't. And it's important that we have people like that who want to get down in the weeds um, because they end up making these wonderful experimental designs and just coming up with these conclusions that would otherwise not have been reached. Agreed. Agreed. What's next for you? This is my last question. So you mentioned at the beginning, you mentioned it's been already quote unquote, already three years of your postdoc. What's next? I, my ambition is to be a PI um, and I'm going to ride that train till it crashes, I think. Um, So I've applied for several grants and, you know, I don't think me becoming a PI is dependent on the success of those grants, Mm -hmm. um, but they would certainly help. So if you're reviewing, pay attention. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But 
I probably will try to go in the job market within the next two years, I mm-hmm. would say, and, and just start looking around. But if you ask me place, I, I have no idea. Um, I don't even know if I would be bound to the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. There are certainly a lot of places, I think, particularly in Europe that I find fascinating and, and you know, exciting yeah. places to just pursue GPCR research. There's so many great hubs over there. Um, and right now it's just me and my husband. So we're relatively free to, to kind of relocate and establish ourselves. Um, so it's wide open, truly. Uh, I think I will continue to be focused on adhesion GPCRs. I'm trying to develop in Jonathan's lab kind of a, a slice of uh, the science for myself. And Jonathan has been very supportive of, you know, helping me move in that direction. Um, and so just with a little bit more luck and some positivity, I'm, I'm hoping that I can achieve that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I wish you all the best and I cannot wait to have you back on the podcast. And so that you can tell us where you land. Uh, obviously it's an open invitation. And if you want to come back and talk about difficulties and funding and how we should, we could revisit or at least talk about, uh, you know, funding scientists and, and academia better in order to preserve it because it's an important part of, of science, you're always welcome, Nikki, to come on board. Absolutely. I don't know if I have any of the answers, but it's certainly (laughs) something I can talk about. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Well, with this, thank you, Nikki, for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for joining us and listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. I'd like to thank our team members, Attila Forrest, Ines Pinero, and our newest Dr. GPCR protégés, Montserrat Avila-Zozoya, and Nipuna Wirusingo. Welcome to the team, Monsi and Nipuna. Please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com testimonials. Another great way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Email us with any questions or suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. And please become a site member today at drgpcr.com. And until next time, stay safe.